The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. So as we continue now in week three of our royal names of the royal child this Advent season, we uh, want to know not only what these names are, uh, but what they mean. We come this morning to the name Everlasting Father. If you have not already opened your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9, it's on page 573 of a Bible in the rack. Uh, And we are going to hear this morning God's word through the prophet Isaiah to his people. So uh, if you've got your Bible open, let's pray and we will hear God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. We pray now that as we turn, that we would also turn our hearts toward hearing appropriately the things which you would say to us. Lord, help us not only to hear with our ears, but also to hear with our hearts by way of faith, which receives your word as true. So, Lord, come, speak to your people. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey, that we might grow for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God now from Isaiah, chapter 9, and the first seven verses. This is the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So uh, we continue to see these royal titles there in verse 6, and we come this morning to Everlasting Father. Uh, Isaiah is speaking to the people of God who are facing the reality of distress and darkness And this prophecy is given as a word of hope and light to break into a scenario of despair to say to the people of God, uh, you should yet hope in your God, for he will come to deliver you. And he will come to deliver you by way of this, verse 6, child born, son given. And the way Isaiah speaks of him is to describe both his character and the disposition of his government. So when it says the government shall be upon his uh, shoulder and of his government and peace there will be no end, he's speaking of his rule and reign. 
Isaiah is here talking about the Messiah and the promises of who that Messiah would be and when he comes, what his reign will look like. And each week we've seen these different descriptors and the way in which they inform our understanding, both of the way Israel would have been expecting their Messiah and how those expectations are thrown wide open in the greater fulfillment of who the person is, uh, the Lord Jesus, who, are, who Christ is and what he has done for us. So what the title means and also what it means for us has been the way we've been approaching this and today, Everlasting Father, the uniqueness uh, of Christ and of his character. So uh, I want to be very direct about what these things mean. I'm also going to try to wade a bit deeper into the pool uh, on some points here and then we'll, we'll kind of come up for air and then consider what, what is the beauty of this reality here to call Jesus Christ the Messiah our Everlasting Father. So let's think first of all about what this title means. Of course, everlasting is a, is a divine modifier. Literally, the Hebrew term could read the Father of Eternity. The Father of Eternity. Now, uh, there are those who like to look at this text uh, wanting to deny the reality of Jesus Christ and his divinity and want to emphasize the fatherhood of all of this and say, well, all Israel saw their various kings as types of fathers or rulers. But fatherhood in and of itself is not the point of this. Actually, interestingly, I just finished a book uh, called Undaunted Courage, which is the, the kind of the authoritative tale of Lewis and Clark's journey that Jefferson sent them across the Louisiana Purchase to find a water pathway to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, of course, there is not an immediate water-only access point, but they did the best they could. Anyway, Jefferson sent them both, first of all, with the mission to find the water-only pathway to the Pacific Ocean, but also to tell every Indian tribe that they came across along the way that they had a new great father. That was the language that Lewis and Clark were supposed to use to the various Indian tribes. You have a new great father. And the various chiefs of the tribes were invited to travel to Washington to meet their new great father. Now, interestingly, by the time they could have gotten there, it could have taken so long that there would have been a new great father, right? a new president because of the terms and variations of cycles. Now, it's interesting that various cultures describe their rulers with paternalistic language to call them fathers. So this terminology would have been known in the ancient Near East to call your ruler a father, even though he wasn't your biological father. And not only fatherhood, but to ascribe deity to the paternity because various kings of the ancient Near East, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Assyrians, their various rulers would call themselves the father of their people. And by saying, I am your father, they were ascribing both the paternalistic sense of you are my children, but also ascribing a deity to themselves. So these various ancient rulers would call themselves gods and fathers. But that was never the case in Israel. It was never the case that in Israel, the various kings would identify themselves as the father of those particular people. It's totally uncommon among the Jews. And so this title stands out because other nations would have called their rulers things like everlasting father, but not the Jews. So it's totally unique. But it's also interesting because the distinction is between a temporary and an eternal fatherhood. Because whether you're a Babylonian or Persian, or whether you're Syrian, whatever the case might be, those different kings and rulers come and go. Just like Jefferson, as the great father, came and went. This is an everlasting father who is, in fact, eternal rather than temporary, as every other earthly king or ruler who want to ascribe this sense of royalty to themselves, but will one day necessarily vacate 
Isaiah is describing the one who is, in fact, an everlasting, eternal ruler, the Messiah himself. This is the Son of God. Now, the people of God at this time didn't see that, didn't know that. But it's interesting, and uh, Bob sang that song, uh, in, in that line, there blooms a rose in Bethlehem. It speaks of Isaiah hath foretold him. Isaiah has told you who he would be. Isaiah has said he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But 700 years before the birth of Jesus, those things didn't connect. But for us who live now 2,700 years since Isaiah spoke these words, we have no reason not to believe exactly that Isaiah is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in his full humanity, in his full divinity, as indeed the only everlasting eternal king and ruler, the only everlasting father. But, you might say, isn't it strange to use the term father to describe the Messiah, who we know to be the Son of God, who we know to be Jesus, when we're so used to using the term Son of God to talk about Jesus? Why the term father to describe the Messiah? So let's uh, let's, let's metaphorically, as it were, start to wade deeply into this point. Isaiah is not saying that the Son is the Father. We are Christian believers. Uh, in the Christian tradition, uh, we have an understanding of God as He's revealed Himself as Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But we do not believe that the Son is the Father and the Father is, not, uh, is the Son. We don't believe that. That's actually called the ancient heresy called modalism. And the ancient heralia of modalism says that God is really just one who manifests himself differently at different times. So God could manifest himself as father in one sense and then later manifest as son and later manifest as spirit in three different ways. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God doesn't manifest himself in various modes at different times, but rather that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all God, and they are not interchangeable. So, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, so you shouldn't say that the Father died for you on the cross because He didn't, because the Son is not the Father, right? That makes some sense. We should not pray, thank you, Father, for dying for me, because the Son died for you, not the Father. The Son did not send the Father into the world. The Son was sent by the Father into the world. Similarly, the Holy Spirit was not born of a virgin. The Son of God was born of a virgin. Now, this, this most commonly comes about when people try to wrap their minds around this doctrine of the Trinity, which is indeed gloriously mysterious. But people try to use different metaphors to explain the Trinity, and they say, well, you know, the Trinity is like an egg. There's a shell and a yolk and a white, and those three are one. Boom! Trinity. No. Or they might say, well, the Trinity is like water in various forms. It's like water in gas and water in liquid and water in a solid ice. Uh, no, actually. Because uh, H2O can't be simultaneously uh, gas, water, uh, and ice. It doesn't work that way. You cannot say the Trinity is like and then say anything and be accurate. Why? 
Because if you say like, you're using a metaphor, and you're trying to draw from the created order something to say that God is like what he is not like because he is outside of his creation. He's distinct and totally different from. You can't take a metaphor within creation to say God is contained within that which he rules over. It doesn't work that way. You can't say the Trinity is like anything. Because he is utterly unique as the sovereign, eternal, omnipotent God. There is no metaphor, none. Not even to the guy in my systematic theology class in seminary who had a Ph.D. from thermodynamics from MIT. In Boston, they call that guy wicked smart, okay? (laughs) Saying to my systematic theology professor, no, I think I do have a metaphor. And he went on to explain something that totally went over my head of the intricacies of thermodynamics and said, See? And my professor just shook his head and said, no. Why? Because God is utterly unique. So, if you scratch your head on the doctrine of the Trinity, we believe in one God eternally existing in three persons. One divine essence, three divine persons. Some people think that Christians can't do math. Some people think that Christians are inherently stupid because they think that we believe that one equals three and three equals one. But we don't believe that. We're better at basic math than that. I remember being told that actually one time, that Christians believe that one equals three and three equals one. Among all the bad things that we are supposed to, by faith, believe that the world derides us for, that kind of bad logic should not be included amongst them. We do not believe that one equals three and three equals one. Instead, we believe that God is one divine essence and three divine persons. Not that one is three and three is one in terms of equality, but rather that one divine essence and three divine persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person possesses the whole undivided divine essence without any remainder. And these three glorious persons dwell together in a community of Trinitarian fellowship and love from all eternity. These three are the one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And all of that to say that when Isaiah speaks of the Messiah, who we know to be the Son of God, he doesn't mean to say that the Son of God is the Father. The point of emphasis here is rather in describing this Messiah as a father, as he takes on the character of a father in his triumphant rule and reign over his people, his children, his subjects. So, to call him the everlasting father is to, for certain, ascribe deity and his rule and reign, and the manner in which he conducts himself. So, all that to also now say, if this Messiah is an everlasting Father, if this Son of God is an everlasting Father, if Jesus Christ is said to be to us and for us an everlasting Father, what does that mean for us? What does it speak to us? What does it say to us? What is it that we should... Uh, hold closely to our confidence and hope because Jesus is our everlasting Father. At least three things. One, to call Jesus the everlasting Father is to you as a Christian believer a word of deeply tender affection. It's a word of affection. That he is everlasting Father is a word of tenderness. He is as a Father who cares for his people. Psalm 103 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, 
Show the, so the Lord shows compassion on those who trust him. Jesus is full of compassion as a father is compassionate towards his children. That's why Jesus has come into the world. Compassion sent him. Compassion for the lost, compassion for the sick, compassion for the weary, compassion for the sighing. Compassion has sent Jesus Christ on his beautifully redemptive Christmas errand to redeem us. Compassion has sent him. As you, as you read through the gospel narratives about the person and work of Jesus Christ, you see compassion motivating Jesus to do what he does. For example, Luke 7.13 speaks of uh, a widow whose son dies. And it says that Luke, uh, Luke tells us when the Lord Jesus saw this widow, it says he had compassion on her. The word compassion is, is literally like being moved within from my bowels, in my gut, turning from within me compassion. And Jesus looked at her and said, do not weep, and then raises that widow's son back to life. Jesus is full of compassion. Or also, in Matthew 9, 36, Jesus it travels around, he's speaking to the crowds, and great crowds of people would follow along after him, and he would oftentimes turn to him, uh, turn to them and preach the gospel. And in Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, when he saw the people with all of their thoughts and opinions and directions and motivations for life, the text says that he had compassion on them because they were helpless as sheep without a shepherd, wandering around each with their own direction, pointless and meaningless for the value of their real eternal significance. And Jesus looks on them and has compassion on them. It's actually that metaphor of a shepherd and the sheep that Jesus is also spoken of in John 10, that he calls his flock by name, and also from Isaiah 40, verse 11, that he will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. He loves the sheep. That's what it means, right? That Jesus loves and is full of compassion, that it is a word of absolute and complete affection. He is a father who is as full of compassion and tenderness toward his children. Now, on that light, speaking of affection, truth be told, some of us have complicated relationships with our earthly fathers or have had complicated relationships with our earthly fathers. And while we love them, it's especially during the holidays that it comes back to us the challenge of both maybe continuing to live with them or the memory of having lived with them. Some of us have very painful histories and have a hard time conjuring up positive thoughts about fatherhood as we think about it in the pages of Scripture. But when we read here that Jesus is the everlasting Father, the word Father, if it for you, tenders up thoughts of fear or mistrust or control, anger, or perhaps even abuse, I want to say to you, that is not, that is not who your God is. Do you understand that when the scriptures speak of Jesus as a father, it speaks of him as a perfect father, the ideal father of a real father who cares, whose love is never torn, turned to you with anything other than compassion, whose love is not fickle. It's a love that does not have strings attached, such that if you were to step out of line, you were to be yanked away from his loving kindness. No, not at all. Jesus is as an everlasting father who knows you, who sees you, he loves you. He knows you in your waywardness. He knows you in your rebellion. He knows you in your lack of motivated affection for him. He sees all of you. 
He sees even your sin. And Christian believer, he still loves you. Seeing all those things and knowing all those things, he still loves you as a perfect father full of compassion is our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. He is a father to the fatherless. There are no orphans in the kingdom of God. His love never fails. It never runs out. It never gets cold. It is never withdrawn. He loves you. Jesus loves you. To call him the everlasting father is to speak of his eternal abiding affection for you so that when we call him the everlasting father in this sense, it means simply that Jesus loves you. As we sing, and we should, right? Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. And sometimes it's simply as simple as that. And especially you tender-hearted believer who are tempted to think that his love for you is conditional, be reminded that it was love that sent him to you in the very first place. He is the everlasting Father, and that speaks a word of affection. But not only does it speak of his affection here, it's also a word of revelation. Because in his coming, Jesus being the everlasting Father means that in his coming, he reveals the Father to us. That because Jesus has come, you and I are able to know the Father. So John says in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. Or do you remember the words of Jesus in John 14, just before His betrayal? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Me. And if you had known Me, you would have known the Father, He says. Uh, the disciple Philip, very much like us oftentimes, I think, struggles to understand how Jesus can relate to the Father and be God, but yet distinct from the Father. And the disciple Philip asked the question, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says, this is so helpful, he says, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and my Father is in me? See, Jesus is not the Father, but he comes to make the Father known. And there is no other way to know the Father except through the Son, through Jesus Christ. Let me be very clear about that. You cannot know the Father if you do not know the Son. The only way the Father can be known is through the Son. You see the Father by looking at Jesus Christ. Christ reveals the Father to us. To see Christ is to see the Father. And the glorious news of Christmas, of course, is that God the Father has revealed Himself that you might know Him by sending His Son so that you can have access to the Father. It's so that you can come and know the Father for yourself, but only through faith in the baby of Bethlehem and the man of Calvary. Only through Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a Christless Christianity. And those who want to read this text and try to strip Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus' true divinity don't understand that if they do that, they rob Christianity entirely. If you don't have a divine Messiah, if you don't have a Son of God who is from everlasting and eternal, you cannot have the Christian faith. And to be very clear about this, if you don't believe and receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, you can't be a Christian. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. To receive and rest upon Jesus. Sinner though I am, 
all sinners are welcome to come, but we must come to Christ. Now, it's a shame oftentimes that even churches want to de-emphasize this reality. And at Christmas time, if you don't have a divine Messiah but still want to celebrate Christmas, all you've got is sentiment rather than truth. But we want both. We want the truth of the reality that produces the real sentiment of the joy of knowing Jesus Christ and the Father whom Christ has revealed because the Son reveals the Father. He is everlasting Father, not just by way of affection, but also by way of revelation that He reveals the Father to us. And so think about it. This is the, the, the wonder of Christmas and the awe-inspiring reality of the Incarnation, that the one that Isaiah calls everlasting Father is simultaneously Mary's child. That Mary nurses He who has no beginning. It should cause you to be lost in wonder and praise and to, as we sing, fall on our knees. Our joy really only makes sense, Christian joy really only makes sense, if into the darkness of a sinful world, the light of life has come, God Himself, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, but to Him we must come and insist on this point, that He only, He reveals the Father to us. So, this is a word of affection, this is a word of revelation, but it is also a word of adoption. A word of adoption. Jesus is the everlasting Father because through Jesus, who reveals God's affection, who reveals God the Father, He also makes it so that we can become the children of God. This speaks a word of adoption. We are brought by adoption through faith in Jesus Christ into the family of God. So says Galatians 4, When the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth His Son. God sent His Son into the world for this reason, Paul says, to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, not everybody by nature, or really not anyone by nature, is born into the family of God. We come into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There are no natural sons or daughters of God, save only one, the eternally begotten Son. If you are a Christian believer, you are a child of God by way of adoption, as you have been brought into His family. As God's Word speaks to us about this reality, that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, we are all orphans because of our sin alienated from God, and Jesus has come to secure our adoption into God's own family. And the only way you can be adopted as a son or daughter is to, in the words of John 1, receive Jesus Christ and believe in His name. God gives the right to become children of God, those born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. How do you become a child of God? You believe in the Son of God, who reveals to you the Father, and the Father's great love. You entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and when you do, you will be able to say with the type of wonder that John also speaks of in 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love has been given to us? How much does God love us that we should be called the children of God? So to call Him the everlasting Father is to speak of His royal divinity, of course, and also the character of that reign in the Lord Jesus Christ, who reveals to you with great affection, 
the Father, that you can become His true child. Affection, revelation, and adoption. So listen, whatever, whatever your earthly associations are like, your earthly family situations, whatever griefs or gladnesses that you experience at the holidays, and I, I'm especially mindful that, that for so many people that this season is difficult, even in as much as it is joyful, simultaneously. We should insist. We should plead with our loved ones, with our, our friends, our neighbors, that they do not need to be orphans of this Father. They can come into His household. They can come into His family. They can become a part of the family of God by believing in the Son who has been sent, who is the everlasting Father. Again, John says, whoever believes in His name, He has given them the right to become children of God, children of this everlasting Father. Loved ones, don't celebrate Christmas and miss that it is about this reality primarily. Not sentiment, but salvation in and through Jesus Christ, the everlasting Father. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do praise you, and we do thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in giving your Son to us, who is for us an everlasting Father. So, Lord, we ask that your blessing might rest upon us, especially this Advent season, with all of its busyness, with all of its uh, time spent with many, but also time spent perhaps in loneliness, we pray. Be near to us, confirm our hope, and Lord, help us to know the joy of living in your kingdom by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.